And I think this is him right here, man. I pit baked this tortoise last night, and I have no idea what I'm going to get into when I dig it up. The shell's breaking pretty clean. Look at that, man. What the hell is that? That's the meat and the guts. I see guts. Where's the meat? Right there. That's the spine. See that spine? That's all back meat. Yeah, I don't mess with tortoises and turtles in my country because I don't think they're worth it, and they really smell. So what the hell is that thing that looks like a half a pink donut? Probably his liver and his stomach. Is that an anus, or is that a... I don't know. It's some sort of orifice. Here's some meat, Cody. Oh, here's the... Here's the thigh. Here's the greens. I don't know tortoise physiology at all, and I think I saw a duodenum, and I think I saw the penis. Dude, that's meat for sure right there. I mean, that right there might be a piece of penis. I think that's a penis. That might be a penis. That's all right. Tortoise penis. Now uh, I just stole his manhood. Welcome back, one and all, to another edition of Nick's Nonfiction. I'm your host, comic Nick Munez. Today on the show, we have got Dave Canterbury's Bushcraft 101. They tried to silence him for a little bit of stolen valor. Now this man is commanding his own army. 600,000 plus subscribers over on YouTube. He hosted two shows on the History Channel, the Discovery Channel. I've seen this man pour gunpowder into his own open wound and light himself on fire to cauterize it. Seen him wander into a mile-long cave without a light, kill a turkey with his bare hands, drink urine fan of the old timers he's always trying to rough it harder than the next guy he's gonna be our foremost expert on bushcraft and he's old now if you see him in his show dirty rotten survival how come the elderly couple left their camping trip disappointed the old man couldn't pitch a tent on this new show him and a group of his swamp rat buddies are challenging each other to five minute preparations for 25 mile hikes they did one episode he started in a mall parking lot in New Jersey and he trekked 50 miles through the Pine Barrens to the next closest mall parking lot. <laughs> Mr. Canterbury did make a public apology for not actually being a scout sniper in the army. And he's definitely not a writer based on word repetition. This thing is a bestseller. And you guys know I've been spending plenty of time in the woods myself if you're following along on the Patreon. Beauty caught on camera out there. What do you call a filmmaker who likes to go camping in the woods alone? Tenton Quarantino. We've got stories of Dave getting turned around in a whiteout. I'll share my own story. I had a close call on the St. Vrain Trail. Got turned around 10,000 feet of elevation. I'm a student of that show alone, too, on the History Channel. It's like the Olympics of survival. So we'll have all those Stone Age tips. Season 8 just ended. You're going to learn a ton. This is the most sacred knowledge being passed down before anyone was writing books. You're going to learn the different types of trees, the benefits of their tannins. Do you know the difference between red and white oak? Do you know what a jug loan is? No, not the follower of the insane clown posse. They're quoted saying, Isn't a volcano just an angry hill? I'd go camping with a jug loan. One of my favorite topics, some endurance in the wild. F. Scott Fitzgerald says, Never confuse a single defeat for a final defeat. In nature, there are no punishments or rewards. There are only consequences. Take it away, sponsors. Welcome back about the author Dave Canterbury. This book was on the 2014 in New York Times bestseller list. If everything's a bestseller, nothing is. He also wrote Survivability for the Common Man in 2011, Advanced Bushcraft in 2015, and there was another spinoff to this series. He's more known for his stint as a host on the Discovery Channel. He's one half of Dual Survival with Cody Lundeen. 
So Dave is the military regimented guy or not really. And then Kobe is this stinky hippie. He goes into the Arctic Circle without shoes on. He has those indigenous feet. It's good contrast. After being fired in 2015, he co-starred in Doity Rotten Survival, aired on National Geographic. My bad. I guess Nat Geo doesn't care that he never shot any Iranians. Shouldn't the employer have to vet their employees? <laughs> I could just... Chris Kyle, he lied about sniping looters in Katrina, and he got Brad Pitt to play him in American Sniper. I'm thinking I need to steal a little valor myself. How do you classify a veteran who's experienced mustard gas and pepper spray? It's a well-seasoned vet right there. Mamma mia. His history is a mystery. This guy says he's worked on reptile farms. He's a commercial fisherman in Florida, and he owns land in Ohio currently. So he's always talking about that's his neck of the woods. He's the owner of the Pathfinder School, one of these survival things. And their show, it's timeless. Got to go check it out. Holistic methods versus keeping to the books. Let's do this thing. After you take an ad right to the eyes. Open, open, open. Chapter 1, Your Pack. Horace Kephart said in 1904, Heroic Age, The man who goes afoot prepared to camp anywhere in any weather is the most independent fellow on earth. When practicing bushcraft, you become a self-contained unit. Everything you need is on your person. Food, water, shelter, heat, these are your only bills to pay. And the five C's are Dave Canterbury's big, these are your new five senses. Forget eyesight, put a blindfold on the whole time. You need, number one, cutting tools, cover, combustion, containers, cordage. Those are five. Cutting, cover, combustion, contain, and cordage. Dip, dodge, duck, dive, dodge. (laughs) And this is all granted you are dressed for it. Not going to make it long if you're naked few extra items you're going to want to throw along like first aid and a compass for navigation but a ton of these items are unnecessarily cumbersome within the first few hundred yards you start thinking of all the things you regret bringing if it doesn't help you achieve core temperature convenience or comfort leave it behind everything should have a function for maintaining bodily functions Starts getting into packs. They come in all shapes and sizes. Colors are good for survival. Like if you are actually lost and they're sending out drones, you got to know someone big that's paying for your helicopter fuel. You want a bright pink bag to be able to strip up and hang on various trees. You want pockets, straps, all the necessary. A pack frame, a rucksack is like one of the parts of a bigger bag, a pack basket, and then a blanket roll to attach your sleeping pad and bag. In terms of blankets, Dave recommends a queen-sized 100% wool blanket. Survive freezing temperatures on the ground. That's a hell of a tool. They have those survival blankets. They don't seem to really work. It looks like a space thing you could wear and... (laughs) What, you could survive in a microwave? They use it as like reflective surfaces within a shelter to bounce back heat from the fire. If you're just wrapping yourself in one of those tiny things, you better wish you have a sheep nearby. If you look at this guy, Dave Canterbury's YouTube page, it's just straight up recommendations for brands. He's doing product reviews. That's this guy's cardinal sin. It's not steel and valor. He's commercializing nature. (laughs) On that show alone, you see people weave suspension beds out of, like, paracord. If you bring some of that military, it's 100 feet of cord. You could break it down to five inner cords. Hammocks are only for naps. You're not going to want to spend a whole night on that. There's a section later. He says a standard rucking pack carries 35 to 50 liters, and that's whatever your style is within there you could go for. A Duluth pack is his favorite, been around since the 1800s. 
in bushcraft, it's one of the few activities where name brands hold value. Military gear, too. D-rings were the name of those loops that you could hook your sleeping bag onto the back of your pack. But then you start looking homeless when you have too much of all that stuff. And think about how over-encumbered a hobo looks. There are no shopping carts in the wild. <laughs> you need more than a bag on a stick, as it's portrayed in the movies. This book has all these survival diagrams, too, so he's drawn the best way to secure everything onto your bag. And in the chapter, he talked about pack baskets. These go back to the 1600s. Fur trappers used them. You could build a twig frame and a leather sack to hold basically anything. Um... Think about those Hispanic mothers. They're always carrying their babies in those slings over the shoulder. It's good for babies or garbanzo beans. They're coming back from the grocery store with them. <laughs> and then he talked about trump lines were basically the same thing. It's like what you could use to secure a diagonal holster. And I'm trying to stall so I could think of a garbanzo bean trump line joke. How come the bean industry got political? Keep my beans out of the spectrum. <laughs> Trump lines, they could hold up to 100 pounds as well. You'd need uh, a Hulk mech gear, like we learned about in Future of Violence. <laughs> Just carry a RV out with you. He said a haversack is another name for one of those slings. And they go back to 6000 BC. Just good for foraging. You could use it as a blanket to sit down and have a picnic ended on belt pouches and how they're perfect for throwing a lighter compass a knife on you bear spray you're ready to draw and don't try to use pepper spray on a bear because that's just some cajun hot sauce for him you need bear spray let's go to chapter two tools an axe and a knife are indispensable tools it's how you make all of your other tools you can make a spoon and a fork with a knife Use the knife to widen joints in some traps that you can't get in with an axe. Well-maintained tools are a difference between like a comfortable tramp or just catastrophic failure. Maintaining a tool is just as much a skill as using it. It's like uh, gun cleaning. People do that as a ritual. And assuming you know the land, after navigation, you're going to need a blade. And he's saying you don't really need a compass that bad after... The sun rises, you are your own compass. Just put a stick in the ground. Knife, axe, that is much more important than having a navigational tool. It's You're only lost when you don't know how to get back to where you were. It's all relative, Watson. Animals, think about it, they have blades on their fingers. <laughs> They're born into this. They got ten knives ready to go. Our superpower is that we can think and create other tools. And if we had claws, you couldn't pick your nose. How do those secretaries with the giant nails, they digging for gold? How do they wipe their own ass? I don't want to know the answer to these questions. <laughs> There's three kind of knives. A butcher blade, a trades knife, and a spear point blade. Spear point, mid-size, great for processing firewood. And your fuel goes a lot longer when you do this thing called batoning. It's like you... Get that mid-sized knife on the top of a half piece of wood, get it started, and then push down on your hand. So you just split it into smaller pieces, more surface area to burn. And you want to push down on your wrist, especially because you could nick yourself pretty easily. You don't want to be a nicker, and there's that thing on the back of the knife. It's called jigging. So you don't want to, they taught me this cooking at Chipotle, if you keep your thumb on that when you rock the blade... You're going to start destroying your wrist easily. So you don't want to be a jigger and you don't want to be a knicker. It's <laughs> definitely learn how to baton your wood. Trades knife is your handy, smaller, four, six inch blade practical sidekick. And he's saying a high carbon steel is a must. We're not doing Stone Age survival out here. You want forged steel. That's like the kid on... Uh, Alone, he forged a shiv out of an old uh, train tie that he found and you just hold it over the fire, beat it with a friggin' hammer. You need an anvil, I guess, as well. 
anything is a resource when you're out there. Just make troll tools. <laughs> a butcher blade is the last of the three, and you could guess what it's for. Dave's tip was it should be a tang design, which is a full-sized blade with a handle covered in plastic. So you don't want a cheap dollar store knife where it's just half a blade, and it breaks off when you're trying to whittle. Whittling, jigging, tang. Blades have all the coolest terms. Butcher knives, you could attach it to a stick with some of your cordage and keep a bear at bay. We're talking about making tridents now. Once you have a knife, you can make some pretty decent weapons. <laughs> and why are we doing the Stone Age thing? Bring a gun. <laughs> I mean, you want to feel secure? Yeah, a bear is going to wander up at you at some point. I don't know why. Bring an RV. Bring an RPG. Put up mines around your camp. On that show, a guy set up bear wire attached to air horns around his camp <laughs> redneck engineering baby next topic he moved on to here were jack knives which are great for multi-functionality like a swiss army knife is a jack knife <laughs> we just tried to make it americanized a jack knife three to four inch blade is the standard within a swiss army knife and you get, like, scissors inside of those. <laughs> There's a rocket ship inside the knife. Back in the times of fur trading, they used jackknives that looked like a uh, barber's razor, but it would flip out with three separate blades, and it was for different layers of skinning. Dave says always wear leather gloves when you're skinning or whittling. He talks about a cutting technique with your axe for making notches, and you're just supposed to cut a V into it. It's all pretty intuitive stuff here. It's called beaver chew method. <laughs> Beavers have chainsaws for teeth. You ever look at that? They have orange in their teeth because there's iron inside of it. What is a bone at that point when there's that much minerals? We're like uh, Wolverine. We have adamantium inside of our skulls. I need to be a human beaver hybrid. <laughs> they are little lumberjacks. They're just rerouting rivers. They're engineers. Axes are great tools for scraping bark off a tree, which beavers have teeth for. And a guy did that on that show. <laughs> There's this edible layer inside of trees. It's right beyond the bark and before the inner core. And it's alive. It's kind of green. You could boil it. And so this guy starts trying to eat the inside of trees for an entire season. He gets massive diarrhea and has to call for a helicopter to get him rescued. You cannot survive off of tree meat. Dave is talking about sharpening stones you could buy varying on grit. So you got to know your blades. There's a bunch of one-size-fits-all. It's just you're going to wear down your blade quicker. He's saying there are a few tools you could buy that will last forever. Jack saws are one of these. It looks like a switchblade but it is a saw and people bring these pretty much anywhere you could if you're in England people are committing mass tragedies with them if you got a little diesel and you're American bring a chainsaw if you're going for a long haul instead of an axe you might want to bring a hatchet and this is the old debate hatchet versus tomahawk remember that book hatchet the kid was in a plane crash <laughs> he survives it he made one vital mistake misplacing his best tool. He buried the hatchet. <laughs> Tomahawks are lightweight, good for throwing. It's, uh, do you want to try to make a boat here? Then you might want to go with a hatchet. Dave said he's used a diamond sharpening device on his hatchets, and it doesn't work as well as ceramic rods. Sometimes the old tried devices work better than diamond whatever. You would think diamond blades would be the hardest, never get dull. Maybe we're just uh, overlooking the battle axe. <laughs> On the next season of Alone, you get to bring ten items out into the wilderness. I want to see one guy bring a two-handed, swinging around, cutting down trees with one big whirl. <laughs> and he said, a safe wood splitting position is on your knees. I've seen those nightmare videos online where you give a girl an axe and she's trying to split wood. She chops herself in the shin. Yes, cringe. It's that bad. You have to get down on your knees. Just axe overhead. Come straight down. And when it comes to cutting down trees, estimating height and fall trajectory 
is a skill that you could only learn with experience. You need that classic up and down, that beaver cut we were talking about before. And then you go over to the other side and make a couple 90 degree in incisions. And then you could start pushing. <laughs> like you call a tree cutting company to come to your house and they're tying ropes to it and stuff. There's a way to do it just by making the correct cut. And Dave's survival secret to end the chapter is to keep them blades lubed up. He prefers olive oil. There's tons of natural substitutes you could find in the trees or from animals. Extra slutty olive oil. Let's go to chapter 3, cordage. Webbing and knot tying are lost skills. Almost everyone except for sailors cannot tie a knot. Cordage is difficult to create in large quantities without time. And you need knowledge of all these fibrous plants that you could break down. Anybody Christian, you go to church growing up and during Palm Sunday, they give you the fronds to play with. So you would strip it. Hopefully you were sitting by someone who knew how to braid it into a cross. I would take it and just break it down into those fibers turn it into a rope, <laughs> and then bring it up to the priest. Hey, if they were really going to hang Christ, why didn't they do it with a palm-made noose? Huh? That show, uh, Dual Survival, these guys, Cody Lundin and him, would rappel down waterfalls with vines like they're Tarzan, and they would braid sawgrass into rope. You don't want to be the first guy to test this material. Your most passive, he says, and caloric benefit of an activity can be done with cordage, and that is fishing. You're going to want to bring parachute cord, biggest bang for your buck. He says 550 cord is this indestructible military blend. Got into the history how rope used to be made of hemp, cotton, or cecil. It's obviously not as durable as military fabrics. Imagine being the first guy to bungee jump with a Cecil bungee. <laughs> Thick rope, he says, can be used for bedroll straps, large traps. You could kill an animal. Those deadfall traps you could use on animals up to hogs. You need five times the weight of an animal to crush itself under its own weight. So if you have like a 50-pound one of those little squealers running around in the south... If you could lift up a 250-pound stump with some cord and a little trigger, you got yourself some bacon. Military trick, he said, is mule tape or some scotch tape. You could break it down to inner strands, just like duct tape. And one 100-foot roll of tape can be up to a 100 yards. Again, I'm not going to be the first guy to rappel down the side of a building with duct tape. If you're going all-natural... They had this tip, Cody London, this hippie never used anything made by man. He would braid braids together. What's to stop you from making a super braid? It turns into Jack and the Beanstalk. Knot tying is a lot like joint construction. A lot of these diagrams in the book not going to be as interesting. A slip knot is the opposite from a stop knot. And so a stop knot you use on a fishing line, a slip knot you use for Jesus on Palm Sunday. A bowline knot is this overhand type of deal you used for tying shelters together. And it's like you've seen it on the top of a teepee. And then a lark head knot is the most simple. It's what you use for a vertical rope. You need like footholds in a rope sometime for up and down. We're talking about Robinson Crusoe here building friggin' elevators out with leaves. And don't you want to know how to tie together a lasso? <laughs> Maybe you could become a cowboy out in the woods. Who was the first guy to get on the back of a horse? You're just sitting there in a bush, crouched down with your buddy. I'm gonna ride that thing. What do you mean, ride? What does that word mean? I'm gonna get on the back of it, put a cordage in its mouth, pull back, and put my spurs into the side of it. Ride, it will be called. Oh, what your wife does to you. Clove hitches, he talked about. That's pretty great stuff. You gotta know how to tie a knot if you're out in the woods. Rope, best learned with practice and experience. Go try to snare some rabbits in your backyard. Chapter 4, Containers. 
from the mid-1800s through World War II, most cookware was either aluminum or steel. Before that, it was tin. But we had the copper age, so it declined. <laughs> Cast iron and, yeah, copper are some of the oldest legitimate cooking materials. Modern tech has composed these ultra-lightweight titaniums, which are basically stainless steel. You could buy an entire set of modern cookware at the same weight as one object a hundred years ago. That's the real benefit. You could have <laughs> people on these like YouTube videos are bringing entire China silverware sets deep into the woods. All you need is that two-sided spoon fork <laughs> and you're set. Wherever I am, I wander into those like military consignment shops when they have them. They have all these, like, <laughs> jackknife eating utensils. <laughs> you ever pick up one of those old grilling skillets? <laughs> you could decapitate a zombie with that thing. In every Anthony Bourdain book, he mentions thick bottom saucepans. Whatever cast iron is, it's not made like it's used to back in my day. They say with cast iron, you don't even have to wash it. That You're supposed to let the oils seep into it to flavor. <laughs> The next meat, very sanitary. Dave says from experience, light titanium doesn't hold up over time. It's going to warp over direct fire. Not good. Are you going to bring a cooking grate out with you? Stainless steel has a longer shelf life if you keep it well oiled. And again, it's heavier than aluminum. In the 60s and the 70s, there was a scare. They were saying aluminum pans give you Alzheimer's. I don't know, maybe what we're putting in the pan we should probably look at. Uh, anodized aluminum is supposed to be one of these things that you want to avoid. You're supposed to avoid everything. You can't go to Subway anymore. They're putting Teflon in their bread. I might as well eat a yoga mat. <laughs> he says you're going to find trace amounts of this stuff in your utensils. I think he was hanging out with the hippie a little bit too much. There's microchemicals in your fork. <laughs> At least you're not using a microwave. We're straight up eating <laughs> radiation. I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> Plastic water bottles are a waste of time and money. Grocery store runs. We could filter poop with life straws. You need one of these bags. I'm telling you, when you're up, you find a glacier. Stick it under. Reverse osmosis filters, I think they're called. If you can survive off your own piss, I think we've been babying ourselves a little bit in terms of water. I mean, fertilizer waste comes out of our spigot. <laughs> That's what fluoride is. The CDC admits the one way to purify water is not by chemical treatment, which is what water plants do. The one way, CDC says, is to boil your water. And 32 ounces of water takes 15 minutes at a hard boil. And he says you should do that at least four times a day. That's two liters of water. If you remember that show, Dual Survivor, it was only two seasons, and then it went on for eight. I only watched those first two because it was that combination of guys. And then Cody walked out on someone else on the show. <laughs> there was one when they did a marooned episode, like they were stuck at sea, <laughs> and they eventually drifted to shore. They created a desalination machine, found an old gas can, put a fire underneath it with an extraction tube, and just put seawater in it. So if these two boneheads marooned on a beach can create a friggin' desalination machine with a gas can, I'm pretty sure <laughs> some scientists could figure out how to get water out of the ocean. I don't know what Nestle's been up to <laughs> on some Bill Gates shit. They owed 50% of the aquifers. There's those homesteading videos on YouTube too. People are able to create these condensation machines to get your own water. Life bottles are going to be your way to go. When it comes to cups, because this is the container chapter, Kuksas was his brand. He's like their wood-treated containers. The guy who won alone, he created this charred wood cup on the first day. He made a deer pelt lounge chair. Some people are out there roughing it, and some people are out there thriving. <laughs> Legit, is some people just slowly starving out in the wilderness. <laughs> some people are making instruments. He ended on some more cooking equipment, and the skillets are how you're going to make a survival stew. You could fry things in their own fat. 
meat rotisseries are pretty big. He said a squirrel cooker is extremely lightweight, two pieces, easy to put in your bag. It's this tea that you stick into the ground and you hang a squirrel in it and rotate it. So he goes around the fire, cools off the little burns. It's like slow cooking. But a lot of your fats and your squirrel oils are going to drip onto the ground. That's why you do want to throw whatever you can into the pots and skillets. So you got every single nutrient you can. He doubled down on nothing cooks like a cast iron. So if you do have a horse, a canoe, or an ATV, I'm saying if you're not counting every single pound, throw a cast iron pan on board. I remember one summer I lived at a building where I was the only one who used the grill, so I put a salt Himalayan slab on top of the grill. And so you just leave it on there. It progressively gets more juices going on this thing. <laughs> Throwing chicken breasts on there, ground meat patties, which I'm not a fan of, but I just want to mix all the juices together. A little salmon, some fishy trout on this thing. By the end of the summer... I would just go out there and lick the salt tab. It's underrated. So yeah, if you have a horse, <laughs> make him pack out a salt slab for you as well. He's ending on this makeshift stove. Because you could be out there <laughs> in the most remote wilderness on the North Pole and you come across a Campbell's soup can. For some reason, that's the most common piece of litter. It's like they drop them from planes. <laughs> There's, they're friggin' everywhere. Soup cans are awesome. You can turn them into a four-burner stove. I've been living at places before that didn't have microwaves for a month at a time. You can make hobo soup, motherfucker. You just throw a can of beans on top of a burner. <laughs> and you could eat out of it like you're riding the rails. <laughs> he called it a tangria stove. Drink the broth straight out of the can. Fish head stew. You catch a little minnow, throw it into your old Campbell's soup can. Drinking gelatinous bones and fish brain. Doesn't get healthier than that. Let's go to chapter 5, coverage. 1919, Kephart, he dropped another quote. This was about flat open plains are not as inviting as a wooded hill country. You're probably scared of bears. You're thinking there's all kinds of trees that are going to fall on you. It's safer than being exposed to the elements. If you get caught out in the prairie during a climate change, you're screwed. With modern technology, you could survive anywhere. We read that Into Thin Air book. <laughs> they don't even need a sleeping bag. And these guys' parkas, you're able to survive for 48 hours just off your body heat on Mount Everest. He said military modular sleeping bags and bivy bags are just as good in combination with wool blankets as any sort of tent. Tarp tents are very overlooked. You could survive several weeks if you just put a tarp in an A-frame shelter. And there's a big controversy in the camping community when it comes to just run-of-the-mill tents you're picturing in your head because they create tiny little flows of water underneath, which then creates condensation. And then your tent becomes that desalination machine. You get condensation on the inside You've probably been like family camping as a kid and your parents have the air mattress. You're sleeping on the cold, hard ground. And by night two, it's starting to get wet on the ground. <laughs> uh, tarps, they're versatile, but there's all these different urethanes and polypropylene, he says, is the most common lightweight tarp. It has no longevity, but seasoned campers are going to go for something that has... Um, like those sewed-in holes to the side. Metal rings are not as good as the ones that are sewed in. This is on that show as well on the History Channel. The people, as one of their ten items, they bring a tarp. You got a shelter from day one before you could build your log cabin. Sin nylon versus nylon. It's like waterproofing versus shelf life. What do you prefer? They say that these modern canvases are fire-retardant. But on this Olympics of survival, people catch their shelters on fire. Don't believe the hype entirely. Anything over 7 by 7 feet tarp-wise is going to be unpractical. The ones you want are pretty heavyweight. 
Um, you can make loops for like bags out of it. This is the best item. People make on that show boats out of tarps. All you have to do is make the frame of it with some young spruce branches, bend it into a boat frame, and then it's amazing. They're in the middle of remote Canadian lakes, two miles out in the water. It's taking risks out there for food. Emergency thermal blankets, he talked about more. It's good for signaling. You could create a giant glare. He moved on to mid-chapter here, ground pads. And you know those little foams, they have the inflatable ones. That's kind of the duality there. The inflatable ones could be punctured. That's the only risk. You got yourself a mini air mattress you're carrying around. One of the best nights of sleep our author Dave had on Dual Survival, he wove a hammock out of vines and put it over a stream. So that convection from the brook keeps all the flies off of you and it keeps you cool as well. His partner Cody dug a hovel out from underneath a tree, <laughs> like a bear den, slept in it. I don't think they got much sleep on that show. He ended talking about those uh, hammocks here. And a hammock is good for a midday nap. Eight hours straight of sleeping, you're going to wake up with a kink in your spine. They have now three anchor hammocks, which you could tie down to three trees, and you could almost get it to a flat plane. Still not perfect from what you hear. It's going to keep you dry because you're off the ground. Might keep you warm-er in comparison. You could roast yourself, put the fire underneath, and you could just tie another line above the trees, throw a tarp over it. It's an option. Good to know what's out there. I like the rotisserie style of that. Adequate shelter. It's the most critical crux of bushcraft. Natural shelters are your friend. Know your basic lean-tos, huts, A-frames. You're going to learn how to stick it out there for a minute. Chapter 6, Combustion. It's the shortest chapter of your tools. Fire is going to be the most necessary. He says, Possessing the means and knowledge to light fire at any moment is a prerequisite for living and surviving in the bush. Warming your body, cooking, lighting up the dark. This is a way to ward off the biggest predators. They're scared of fire, pussies. Something to watch while you fall asleep. This is entertainment. You gotta purify that water. Reliable combustion devices are something to look ahead on. The guy Dave always carries a uh, tin, like an Altoid can, full of char cloth. So you just hold things over the fire, mix in pine resin and all this like he's making grenades out there in the wilderness and he just carries them with it so when you wake up and the fire is about to die out you throw a bomb on top of it poof and you disappear lighters he said come in a endless variety have you been to 7-eleven buy a bright color one you don't want to get bicked by nature <laughs> says like an orange lighter you don't want one of those refillable ones because they evaporate if you leave a zippo lighter on your shelf forever and you come back to it it doesn't light so you want one of those bics i don't know how they last forever and they're 99 cents he uses a three lighter minimum because you're going to misplace them you want one in your pockets one on your belt loop below 30 degrees a lighter won't light so you have to hold it in the palm of your hand to get that liquid inside of it going and to combat this you could go back to a flint rock they have now ferroceronium rods. Many brands are a blend of iron and magnesium. This is your fire stick. You should wear this thing around your neck. 3,000 degree sparks come off of it when you hit it with a knife that is very hot. You could catch like moist moss on fire even. Dave says don't buy one with a handle. Buy just the rod itself and then put a piece of tape on the end. You could take the tape off. Get a little extra use. This is one of your best items on that show alone one season. A guy dropped his rod into the fire and he had to tap out a week later. Otherwise, you're sitting there with a bow drill every single night for half an hour, just burning calories. His partner, Cody Lundin, was like the god of fire. He would create these little baby bundles of tinder, put a coal in from the bow drill. He'd go at it for half an hour and it drops a tiny little disc that's hot put it into the bundle and then blow into it until it just whoosh it's freaking magic this bow drill thing 
You'd have to take a class to learn how to do it. And keep that charring tin on you. Or maybe just a flamethrower. Chapter 7. Setting up camp. Shelter is creating your own micro-environment. So if one of your items can be a woman to take out there, do so. It's good for nesting. There's no air conditioning cost he's going so you want to live by the water it's naturally cooler and where you choose to establish your camp is just as critical as if you're going to survive what you're looking for is the four w's wind water wood and widow makers wood just as important as water keeping yourself cool hydrated and then keeping yourself warm this is your fuel running water is your best bet for the in-between. Stagnant puddles and like ponds are going to evaporate in the summer. Not a good bet. Some running water is uh, where you could find a source eventually. Just follow it up. Now you got fish, frogs, crayfish, mollusks, turtle soup to eat. The second of those W's was wind. Widow makers, they go together. A widow maker is just a tree that's about to die. And they, <laughs> I don't does this really happen? They fall on people in the middle of the night. Your shelter is going to need to take into account restroom functions. And you don't want to contaminate your water supply. People build urinal chutes out of their shelters. That's still cutting it kind of close. When it's in the middle of the winter, you're obviously not going to go outside. Your pee stream will freeze. For a quick deuce, you have to go outside. And you have to dig a 10-inch hole. This is the best practice. And then cover it up as soon as you're done to not attract scavengers. For the long term, you want to go like 40 yards away from your shelter. Dig a trench, basically. And so progressively, you go along the trench and squat with it between your legs. And you're just laying down fertilizer. Packing in the trench. Laying down a deuce. Packing in the trench. You're digging your own friggin' outhouse holes. And, yeah, people, the Native Americans, would then put seeds inside of it. This is why strawberries are full of all those seeds. All you do is poop then, and then it grows strawberry plants. You're going to start creating your own Eden around your own shelter. In the theme of hygiene here, you're going to want to bring a toothbrush. You know, people get anal about this. They're, like, cutting off the end of their toothbrush to save weight. (laughs) There are chew sticks. People just brush their teeth with sticks. <laughs> That's why hillbillies don't have billboard smiles. Dave's favorite design, he says, for a shelter is a plow point. Three ends of a tarp tied down. This guy sleeps like a hog half underground. And for fires, you want to keep a triangle. What is it called? The Venturi effect, the updraft of air. You want to take advantage of those teepee structures, a log cabin fire. Get that updraft feeding your fire. And then he said Dakota fire holes. (laughs) Fire in the hole. You dig a two-ended hole so that air flows down one end and up into your fire. Great way to build a shelter. We're talking about AC HVAC in the wilderness. Chapter 8 here. Navigation. Quote by Don Paul. Knowing where you are is unnecessary. What you need to know is how to get back to where you were. Getting lost in the wilderness is one of the most helpless feelings you're ever going to feel. So get started with this landmarking idea. Canterbury says to always be placing these mental markers while you scout your surroundings. Because direction is your sixth sense. How is that not sight, sound, touch, boners? Isn't your sense of direction one of these? (laughs) Aside from a compass navigation, you want to have mirrors and flares. He's saying signal, smoke, fires, a compass is not your only way to find help. Again, a stick in the ground is a pretty good shadow to create a compass. What a 360 degree compass with a little slit for finding your marker That is good for a long distance, and it's hard to cover distance if you're actually trying to survive. You know, there's different types of survival. you got to know your surroundings. The compass is also good for what's called a 90-90-90. You pull a three 
left turns to go around a lake to make sure you're not losing your bearings at all. Lateral drift is this phenomena where people naturally favor one side of their body, so you do drift left or right over distances. And if you're traversing anything hilly, you are definitely going to drift to one side or the other. The bezel ring is the name of that thing on the bottom of the compass. helps keep it straight. There's, uh, you can't really teach this. You know, Marines go for entire months in the woods to try to learn how to use a compass. <laughs> I'm saying you better have looked at a map beforehand. And that way you could leapfrog in the general direction of society if you actually are lost. He said to set backstops on the map before you leave, which are landmarks that you know you cannot go past. Look at different types of maps that have, like, this is where rock falls happen. So you could just be prepared. All trails, whatever rudimentary thing you're using, usually doesn't cover every single aspect. I'm trying to get into this story here. I'm going to start going long. But on Mount St. Vrain, I was five miles in. It's a 12 plus mile out and back and it was 10,000 feet of elevation I was getting towards the summit of St. Vrain 12,000 foot summit this is like the upper tundra of elevation so the trail starts splitting I'm coming out of heavily wooded area and it's this white chalky ground it doesn't go into one I stop there I start stacking a couple rocks into those beacons that you see and I just continue forward figuring I know where I am I get through this area and then we start getting the friggin' storm clouds in. If you watched the video, it's up on the Patreon. But I start heading back the other direction. There is no totem in sight. That little thing that I set up, I'm seeing a few other people's there. But I, I guess I forgot to look for my own. <laughs> and I missed the trail maybe going high side. It was maybe two minutes longest that I didn't look up and make sure that I was on the trail and I realized I am uphill or downhill I need to try to make it back to the trail so I pick a quarter mile I go downhill and directly uphill I pulled out my friggin iPhone compass I did north south so at this point I go back up to the original point where I know I'm lost at and I poop I mean my stomach I've never had this feeling it was like yo this is no longer joke territory you need to go into void the bowels mode. Quickest dump I ever took. I did not dig a 10-inch hole. I don't think anybody else is going to wander across this remote pit patch of land. I start going west because I looked at the map. I come to this giant overlook. I regret not taking a video because I was overlooking a friggin' exact cliff. <laughs> I find a landmark in the distance where I think the trail overcomes. And I just go head down for maybe half a mile and I eventually come across after butt sliding for a little bit a piece of the trail I was unlocated for a total of 45 minutes maybe and it felt like a friggin year <laughs> you really get checked in some of these situations and you really have to be good at that thing landmarking and look at your maps beforehand it's not a joke like you go out to these trailheads and there's always a picture of some guy that looks like he's on mushrooms and they're saying this guy's lost <laughs> it happens all the time uh not a very uplifting story getting to the end of the chapter here about navigation two more after the five main terrain features are hilltops ridge lines saddles and draws a draw is just a steep saddle Dave is saying you want to usually go to valleys because there is small game, easy to hunt with little resources, and water. And Dave said he was once 200 yards away from his cabin in Ohio, and he got completely lost by a whiteout. Flash snowstorm. He was outside for an hour before the snow uh, lightened up and he was able to see his cabin again. Some scary situations out there. You are at the will of nature. Chapter 9, Trees. For the most ancient times, humans have had a primal belief that plants contain healing powers. Trees are a four-season resource. When you check into the four-season hotel, instead of giving you a warm cookie, they should heat up <laughs> an interior of tree bark and serve it to you. 
Go outside and hug a tree. They're not widow makers. These are your friends. True bushmasters know like all the growing seasons of the local foliages. He taught us about pine trees and evergreens are the ones that keep their needles year round. I heard recently that alpine trees are all clones. It's like those videos I'm posting. It looks like every single tree is the same. They say if one tree is next to a dying one, it'll divert resources through its... There's like a mass consciousness going out there in nature. Dave talked about the dying ones when they're missing their needles. They're good to burn. If you ever seen it, it looks kind of creepy. What is that called? Trypophobia? All these tiny little needle holes? White pine has the highest medicinal value. And then red pine is the best for construction. You know the red forest? One of the biggest alpine forests in the world is over in Russia. There's tons of videos of Ukrainian kids in this like nuclear radiation forest. They're building stuff out of those trees. Amazing. Young male pines don't have seeds and they can be eaten. So again, now you have to know the difference between male and female if you're trying to eat trees. I guess all plant matter can be eaten, like in small amounts, humans can eat grass. The guy on the show was eating it like a beaver. <laughs> you get a lot of vitamin C from trees if you take pine needles and put it in your tea. It's like a natural immune system boost. You can't let a vegan listen to this chapter, I guess. They're going to start. <laughs> What's on the menu tonight? We have a nice oak tree. Pine sap is your best adhesive and is also used as a band-aid adhesive. So you could put it directly on an open wound. Natives called it new skin, so it's antiseptic. Fatwood is a resinous area of a pine tree that'll burn for three times as long. Wow. So you can use it as that remedy on your skin. Or you know when you see that like booger it looks like coming out of a tree, you cut down the whole tree and then use that one log on the fire and it'll burn extra long. Pretty dope. Good to know. And I wish this book went into all those like how different trees have different smells. They create different kinds of smoke. A couple more tidbits here. Willow trees are super pliable and so they're good for structures. The tea of a willow is good for pain killing so it's like a natural aspirin black walnut trees carry iodine which is that stuff that they use to purify water iodine tablets this is again another antiseptic and i mentioned in the intro a juggalone jug loan it's like the same thing as a tannin it's these little qualities that they have within their barks and leaves iodine it also prevents rust so if you rub that on your knife blade It'll make it last longer. Iodine stuns fish. So if you put a log into a tiny pond, a school will just start flopping out of the water. That's wild. There's natural stun grenades in nature. Sassafras is another edible bark. Oak is the strongest building material. Red oak has pointed leaves. Latin Europeans called it materia medica. It could cure everything from a runny nose to diarrhea. Chapter 10, the final chapter, and most interesting, game. 1881, we have a quote from, Otter, mink, beaver, and muskrat are among the most desirable game for the trapper. As these are all amphibious animals, a water district is therefore the best on all accounts. William Hamilton Gibson. When you're hunting, you're covering miles of land, your head on a swivel, it's being at high alert for a long time, being ready to launch an arrow hundreds of yards. Being in a river district when you can trap is your best bet in terms of caloric deficit. Setting traps and fishing, setting a trout line, are your best way to get free calories back. He says with a trap, you have to entice an animal to place its foot in a two-inch circle without being there. This is an art form. You have to be able to recognize trails, utilize patience, sit there for days at a time to just see where a rabbit goes by. You would think adding more traps increases your odds, but the stat increases when you add along setting signs. So anybody could put a trap in the middle of a parking lot. Your odds increase when you see bunny pellets like 
turd, and you put a trap next to it. Now your odds just went up a ton. There's three parts to a trap, the trigger, the lever, and the engine. The engine is usually gravity. Then you just need to know how to make those little figure fours so that the weight will fall down on itself. He says all these types of traps can be summarized by strangling, mangling, and dangling. <laughs> traps can be handier than hunting because live food never spoils. You get to kill the weasel on sight. Strangle the weasel? That sounds like a euphemism for masturbation. In scarce times, you can and should set traps without bait. And obviously your odds go up when you put fish eyeballs in the trap. But then you can't have fish head stew. When it comes to scavengers like raccoons and possum, anything that stinks they like. I would try this. <laughs> you know, try everything if you're out there. Take a steamer on top of a stump and put a... <laughs> Actually, no, because then you put a deadfall and you're smashing the dead raccoon into your feces. Feces, that's short for... I said it's a sin to commercialize nature. Maybe it's a little disrespectful to mash a corpse up in your dump. I would prefer to eat subway yoga mats over a poo-coon. <laughs> He's breaking down all the parts of a foothold trap. He talks about bear traps here. And there's this thing called a cona bear, which is a tiny trap that you could fit in your backpack. It's lightweight. And it catches everything from squirrels up to beavers. You can get some pretty big meat in that. Um, in that show, Dual Survival, Dave caught a skunk in a trap. So he had to let it go. You don't really eat that meat. <laughs> I guess French people do. And he got sprayed when he let it go. And it was that same edition where he came across a beehive. So he taped garbage bags into a beekeeper suit. And then tried to smoke out a beehive. And he actually got a piece, got stung a bunch. And of course, Cody, the hippie, ate all the honey. I'm telling you, that guy was a bear. <laughs> and he might have been gay, too. Trapping can be done with those iodine, the tricks, the smoke to discombobulate an animal. And use, uh, again, with the bait, insects are good for this. Of course, you can eat grasshoppers. This is what a vegan wants you to do. There's not a lot of nutritional value. Yes, there's protein. This is a misconception, and you were lied to for half a century by big science. You could see New York Times paid scientists to make fat the enemy over sugar. This is documented. It's not fat that's bad. Fat is actually what keeps you alive. You need fat. Bear blubber is this new thing where you can make shampoo, you can make soap, you can make... You can make all these kinds of oils, and you need to eat bear fat to stay alive. On that show alone, the guy got protein poison because he killed a deer, and it didn't have enough fat on it to keep him alive. So with these insects, grasshoppers, you get a lot of uh, intestinal worms from them as well because they carry brain parasites. Insects are very uh, good food for our food. And even things like vultures, buzzards are going to eat insects. That's why we don't eat seagulls and buzzards. He ends on some more fishing. Little known fact, all freshwater fish in North America are edible. Whatever your local municipality is saying about getting mercury in your fish, that's just so they could keep their rivers stocked. <laughs> Catfish is some of the oldest food for natives. They have tough skin, so sometimes you need a plier-like tool to sever the skin. Smoked fish is how you get through a winter. Meat should be dried like jerky to preserve it as long as possible. There's all these diagrams on smokehouses or cook camps. Smoking meats, I'm sure Cody loves that. To not become a meal, you're gonna wanna bring that bear spray and you don't want to really come across a big cat. There's nothing you can do about the cats. Those are the apex predators. I don't think they battle the bears ever, but what do you call an apex then? Cats, they hunt at night, so you got to be sheltered up, and they're not really coming after your meat. It's a battle with the bears. Dave ends it saying, 80% of what you hear is invaluable information. <laughs> this book represents his 20% of tips he's came across his entire life in order to smooth it 
instead of rough it. Dave Canterbury, thank you very much for Bushcraft 101. That was an enjoyable topic. I chose this as an intro to the theme of nature because we have things like uh, Missing 411, the survival stories. We have Montana Outlaws. We're going to read like Empire of the Summer Moon, all those Native American books. Just easing into the topic here week after week. I hope you guys learned something today. Next week on the show, we have Hell's Angels by Hunter S. Thompson. That's right. It's going to be our October-themed edition for Halloween. How would you react if a group of 50 bikers showed up at your local watering hole? Is this true journalism? Hunter S. Thompson goes undercover, plays the part, rides up to the hate, terrorizes hippies with a biker gang. This is organic American culture from the 60s. That's going to be a classic Nick's nonfiction. Thank you, the listener. Make sure you guys are checking out that Patreon page. Support the show. See you guys in just seven short days. My name is Nick Muniz. Peace.